Well, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and join me in Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, if you're using the blue ESV Bible in the seatbacks out there, you can find our text on page 917. The title of our sermon is Unto Judea, and the keywords for our worshipers in training are confounded disciples and comfort. We'll be looking at verses um, 20 through 31. Acts 9, 20 through 31. In the, in the opening verses of Acts 9, we witness the conversion of of Saul, a Pharisee who had been zealously persecuting the church ever since the stoning of Stephen. We saw in Acts chapter 8 how the Lord had used uh, Saul's persecution um, to advance his kingdom agenda outside of Jerusalem in the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria. Philip, in particular, was used by the Lord in the conversion of many Samaritans in Acts 8. But Saul continued to persecute Christians during this time. But that we saw in Acts 9 uh, last time that on his way to Damascus, the Lord Jesus himself intervened. He stopped Saul from carrying out his task. He saved him and called him into the apostolic ministry. Saul was told that he was to carry the name of Jesus before the Gentiles and the whole house of Israel, and that he was to suffer much for the sake of Christ. And so, that is essentially where we we left off with Saul last time. And I want to read now verses, uh, really the, the last half of verse 19, but verses 20 through 31, we'll outline them and then get to work. We read, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So there are three 
movements that I want you to see with me in this passage before us. In the first place, we see the inferiority of false religion to the gospel message, as it's demonstrated by Paul's preaching in the synagogues in verses 20 through 22. Second, we see the hatred that false religion has for the gospel message, as demonstrated by the Jews' desire to kill Saul in verses 23 through 25. And third, we see the unifying effect of the gospel message, as demonstrated by the apostles' reception of Saul in 26 through 31. So we see the inferiority of false religion, 20 through 22. We see the hatred of false religion in 23 through 25. And we see the unifying effect of the gospel in 26 through 31. Would you look with me in the first place then at verses 20 through 22, where we see the, the inferiority of false religion, or to reverse it, we see the superiority of the gospel message over false religion. Technically, the opening words of this paragraph are marked as part of verse 19, but it makes more sense to address them with verse 20. Saul, after being converted and meeting Ananias and uh, being baptized and having the scales fall from his eyes, we're told that he remained for some days in Damascus after this. But very quickly, immediately, in fact, writes Luke, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. And those who heard him proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God were amazed or ecstatic. They said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? Uh, uh, That he brought all of this pain and anguish and suffering upon those who call upon this name that he now proclaims? And is it not for this very purpose that he came here to Damascus in the first place? So that he might bring them bound to the chief priest. It was utterly astounding. Saul, you have to, we have to grasp, Saul was no obscure figure. His opposition to the gospel message was not an unknown feature of his life. He hated Christ and those who followed him. Luke says that he approved of Stephen's murder. He, he oversaw it in some way. The witnesses tossed their cloaks at Saul's feet. In Acts 8, the beginning of Acts 8, Luke tells us that he approved of Stephen's murder and he went about ravaging the church, entering people's homes, dragging them out, and putting them in prison. And in the beginning of chapter 9, he summarizes again, Uh, Saul's pharisaical ministry, that he was breathing out murder and threats against the disciples of the Lord. Saul himself, when he recounts his testimony later in Acts, he says that he, he voted often for the murder and execution of these Christians. And yet here in Damascus, the very town that he was headed to wreak even more havoc, now he, here he was, proclaiming Jesus as the Son of God. Surely some of them thought it was a ruse, perhaps. Maybe this is his way of finding out who the followers of Jesus really are here. Could, can we trust him? Well, many didn't. But as we'll see, some did. 
Now, Luke summarizes the content of Paul's preaching there in Damascus with two phrases. Um, And he does it in the uh, beginning in verse 20 and then in verse 22. Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as the Christ. That's the, the sum total of what Luke says Paul was preaching there in Damascus. In a, and in effect, they are saying the same thing. You know, we often read the phrase Son of God in Scripture and think only in ontological terms, only in terms of uh, Jesus' divinity, his, his identity as God. But we need not forget the functional significance of this title. Now, we'll see more about this when we get to Acts 13 in a sermon that Saul preaches then. But I want to address it here briefly since Luke brings it up. Now, in Acts 13.30, this is what Saul or Paul, this is what he says. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now witnesses to the people. And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The divine sonship of the Lord's anointed king in Psalm 2 is particularly demonstrated and realized in his resurrection from the dead, according to Paul in Acts 13, anyway. Jesus is demonstrated and confirmed to be God's Son, His King, His Anointed One, by His resurrection from the dead. The cross, without the empty tomb, is useless. In Psalm 2, remember, the psalmist laments the nations and their rebellion against the Lord and against His anointed, or His Messiah. But the psalm concludes that the Lord has set His Son, whom He would raise from the dead later, according to Acts 13, He set His Son on His holy hill and over the nations to rule over them with a rod of iron. And the psalm concludes with an invitation for the nations to kiss the Son, lest He be angry and they perish in the way. So we have these parallel references to Jesus as the Son of God and as the Christ here in Acts 9. It's likely that Luke already has Psalm 2 in mind as he recounts Saul's ministry among the synagogues at Damascus. Together, these titles serve to demonstrate to the Jews and really to all readers, that Jesus was in fact that long-awaited Messiah or Christ. Those are Hebrew-Greek transliterations essentially that mean the same thing. Anointed one, that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Christ. He was, in other words, the seed of the woman who had come to crush the head of the serpent. And having done so and been raised by God to life, He was set on his throne as the newly crowned king of the cosmos. The Old Testament is all about the expectation and hope for God's anointed one who would come. Israel's true prophet, priest, and king. He would come to teach God's people. To make atonement for their sins. To intercede for them. To rule over them. To lead them into God's will. 
This is exactly what Jesus came to do and what he did. What he has done and is doing. But the the Jews at the time rejected him and murdered him. And they employed the Gentiles, the Romans, to do it. Because he wasn't a king after their own making. But Saul demonstrates here to the Jews in Damascus... From the Old Testament itself, most assuredly, he demonstrates Jesus was, in fact, the Christ. He is the Son of God. And so what is the effect that this message has upon his hearers? Well, it confounds their wisdom. We read in verse 22 that Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. That he was the Christ. And here we come to the point. Jesus Christ is king. And his gospel message is superior to false religion. This is so namely because the gospel is true and false religion is, well, false. Jesus is the king. He is the way. He is the truth and the life. There. There is life to be found only in His name. Earlier in Acts, Peter told us plainly that salvation is found in no other name other than the Lord Jesus. No other name under heaven given among men. In Jesus alone does the world, Jews or Gentiles, have any hope. And so my my friends, this morning I want to ask you this. What temptations do you face to entrust yourself to worldly, false, ungodly wisdom and religion. What competing claims do you find yourself being lured into by the present day? Do you find yourself trusting in your own wisdom, your own might, your own goodness, trusting in those things to save you? Trusting in the schemes and the plots and devices of man. It's it's tempting, right? It, It can be tempting to live by what your eyes can see rather than what your faith can apprehend. Friends, Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Christ. Do we trust Him? I pray that we would. I pray that we wouldn't be like the Jews at Damascus and Saul's day, or many of them here, who, because they couldn't argue against him, they turned to violence. And so look with me in the second place, verses 23 through 25, where we see the hatred that false religion and its adherents have for the gospel message. Very simply, in verse 23, we're told, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. There is the hatred for the the true king boils over into murder of his people. You know, we're told here, after after many, many days, this took place. I want to come back to that, but I want to consider two lessons that we can draw from, from this verse 
here in 23. And then I want to look at, or one from this verse and one from 24 and 25. First, don't be surprised when the world hates you. Jesus made this point directly to his disciples in John 15. He says that the world hates you. He says, know that it hated me before it hated you. He goes on to remind his disciples that if the world persecuted Jesus, would it not also persecute those who follow him? So, brothers and sisters in Christ, for Christians, that means like we follow a rejected, persecuted, and crucified Savior. Now, that isn't the end of the story. He is not only a rejected, persecuted, and crucified Savior. But he is, in fact, a Savior. He is, in fact, a raised-from-the-dead Savior who now sits at God's right hand. And yet, it must land squarely on our shoulders that Jesus, to get to the crown, had to endure the cross. Your king, fellow Christians, was brutally murdered by his enemies. And their sons and daughters hate him still, and when push comes to shove, will treat his followers with the same contempt. This is an important point for us to grasp. We should expect some measure of tribulation in the world. Especially, and this is especially applicable in our present day, living in a culture that is increasingly setting itself against the Lord and his anointed. You know, I, I think in, American, in America today, it, it would still generally surprise us. It still surprises us to hear to see someone getting, really getting in trouble for their faith, getting locked up or something like that. That is less true in other places in the West, and increasingly it seems more and more likely here. But Christians do presently experience increasing measures of backlash and persecution in other types of ways here in America, right? What's the phrase of the day? Getting canceled, losing jobs, being driven perhaps from their homes to have to settle in other places because of sort of the writing on the wall perhaps in those states or cities. You know, we've not yet gotten to the the place of widespread arrest, but there are many other means being employed to punish the people of Jesus, So let's not be surprised when we see it escalate. But neither should we despair. Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus has confounded the wisdom of the worldly wise. He has stripped the strength of the earthly strong. He is the victorious king who has conquered sin, death, and the powers and principalities that wage war against our souls. So, don't be surprised when the world hates you, but, believer, take heart. The second thing that we see more in verses 24 and 25 here was that we shouldn't begrudge, while we shouldn't begrudge suffering when it comes, because it is sent to us ultimately by the hand of a a loving Father who is using it for our good. While that's true, we are free 
to be wise. We're encouraged, in fact, to be wise. And at times, that means avoiding approaching danger when we are able. You know, like I said, it's important that we not grumble or complain. But there are times when God provides an escape. And if God provides an escape to you in your suffering, in danger, you shouldn't feel guilty for taking it. Right? What we see here in these two verses, 24 and 25, the plot of the Jews became known to Saul. So instead of heading out of the gates where they were watching day and night, he knew they would be there, he was let out through an opening in the wall, being lowered in a basket. Here's what you don't read in these verses. Saul learned of the plot of the Jews, and he simply said, Oh well, God has ordained it, so let it be. No. He took action. He sought to escape with his life. A couple times in Proverbs, uh, 1 being 20, Proverbs 27, 12, we read this. The prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. No, we're not called to walk stupidly into danger, either presuming that God will save us or resigning ourselves to death unnecessarily. So if you find yourself facing oncoming danger or perhaps oncoming persecution, there absolutely is a time to face it head on. But there are also times when we should avoid it when we can. This, of course, doesn't mean that we ought to compromise our values or our principles or our doctrine. But it does mean that we, we not only, like we shouldn't, we shouldn't seek trouble, for sure, but also when it comes, we may avoid it if we are able to do so. And I think this is the key without sin, right? How do you know if you should avoid such this danger or, or not? Well, would avoiding this danger, would this particular course of action to avoid this danger require you to sin? Now, ultimately, there's much more that needs to be asked and said and, and discussed. Um, any particular situation is going to be different um, depending on all, a lot of factors. But a, a very overarching important principle when we think about whether or not we should head out the gates and get arrested and murdered or whether we should escape through the wall in a basket is, am I sinning by doing this? If I may avoid the danger without sinning against God or my neighbor, then I should feel free to do so with a clear conscience. But if, I, if the only way of escape is to sin by omission or commission perhaps, then that almost certainly we would say, we would say certainly God is asking us to trust him and to press on. So, don't be surprised when the world hates you, and feel free if you can escape danger without sinning, then do so. Look with me in the third place at verses 26 through 31 for a third point where we see the harmony that Christians have in Christ. And we're told that after leaving Damascus, he eventually makes his way back to Jerusalem. Now, Paul in Galatians 1 and 2 writes about the early days of his conversion. 
you know, the, the after many days, I said I wanted to come back to this in 23, in verse 23, the after many days had passed. Um, that is likely we, about three years from what Paul says in Galatians. He was there about three years before they wanted to kill him. And then, according to Paul in Galatians, there's a, another gap of 14 years, likely here between verses 25 and 26. He left Damascus. He went to Jerusalem. He saw Peter and James for about two weeks, and then he went to Syria and Sicilia. And then after 14 years, he returned to Jerusalem and attempted to join the disciples and the apostles. But understandably, they were afraid of him. They, like the Jews in Damascus, they didn't believe that he had really become a disciple of Jesus even after all this time. But Barnabas, whom we had met in Acts chapter 5, vouched for him, retelling Saul's story to them that he had what he had seen, Paul, Saul saw the Lord Jesus. He had spoken with the Lord Jesus. He had preached Christ boldly in Damascus. And so upon the word of Barnabas, they received Saul. And then he went in and out, of, went in and out among them preaching Jesus. He even finds himself contending with the Hellenists or the Greek-speaking Jews. And, and they, like the Jews in Damascus, wanted to kill him. And like he had in Damascus, again, he left town to minister elsewhere, we're told, namely Caesarea and Tarshish. And I want you to see then the effect of all of this. So this verse in 931 is this culminating verse of everything that has really been started since Stephen's arrest in Acts chapter 7. Luke writes, the church throughout all Judea And Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. There is a great contrast between chapter 8, verse 1, and chapter 9, verse 31. At the beginning of Acts 8, there's a great persecution that had broken out against the church. And the disciples were being scattered about. They were going all into Judea and Samaria. Which, if, you, if we're good Bible readers, we've, we've still got Acts 1-8 in our minds even then. Where Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. But at the time in Acts chapter 8, or at the time for the disciples then, it would have been a very hectic, chaotic, and terrifying experience for many. But now, now that we've got to the end of Acts, or near the end of Acts chapter 9, what do we find? We find peace in the church throughout these regions. The church, we're told, was being built up, was walking in the fear of the Lord, was walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and was multiplying as it did so. How, how interesting it is that Saul, had, who had initiated the persecution that led to the scattering of Christians throughout Judea and Samaria, now, having been won by the Lord Jesus, is to be the instrument in God's hand, along with Philip and others, to bring peace, strengthening the fear of God, to bring comfort and growth to scattered disciples. I don't want to, I want to back up, though, in, in this 26 through 31 section here and think about something. Consider the faith of Barnabas 
Consider the faith of the apostles. Consider the faith of the disciples, both those in Jerusalem and those in Damascus, the ones who let Saul out through a basket in, uh, through the wall. You know, when we looked at Saul's conversion, I asked you to think of the person or the people in your life that you least expect to come to Christ. And I asked us to pray for whoever those folks are. And I hope that we've done that and have, that we have been doing it and will continue to do that. But I want to take that thought and, and either modify it or, or push it a little further. Maybe you already went here, but like, what if that least likely person was someone violently persecuting Christians? Not just someone who radically is disinterested in the gospel or hates Jesus very much in his heart, but, but violently persecutes Christians. How would you react? How would we react if out of nowhere that person approached you and said, hey, I'm now a follower of Jesus? And remember, too, To keep the analogy the same, this is a person who has some real measure of authority and power to end your life and has done so to other people who profess Jesus. And so he comes to you and says, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. Can we talk? What would it take for us to let someone in here who had previously been such a severe enemy and threat to the cross and its followers? Upon whose word would you trust that this person had, in fact, come to know the Lord Jesus? The faith of Barnabas, the apostles, and the disciples at Jerusalem and Damascus here is astounding and convicting, and I pray encouraging. But we must remember, it all comes from the Lord. Back to verse 31. They're walking in the fear of the Lord, not in the fear of man. They're enjoying the comfort of the Holy Spirit, not the comfort of man. So let me close with this. Look at verse 31. I want to read verse 31 again. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Would you join me in in sort of praying these words? Praying verse 31 for Redeemer Baptist Church and other churches. But would you pray this for us, and would you pray it with great hope? Friends, it is my prayer that this would be increasingly and immeasurably true of us here at RBC. Let us pray for peace. Peace from without and from within. Let us pray that God would build us up. Let us pray that we would walk in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of His Spirit. And let's pray that we would, in fact, multiply. If you've seen the children around here, you know that at least that much is happening. Let us pray, though, let us pray for peace that no matter what difficulties, what persecutions, what dangers, what distresses we face, 
Let us pray for peace that we would remain steadfast in our hope that God loves us and that he shall bring us into his eternal kingdom. Let us pray that God would build us up. Let us pray that God would make us mature, that we would grow as Paul urges the church in Ephesians 4 to be built up until we attain the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. While you pray, friends, ask yourselves, am I growing up into Christ? And if not, if you're not, pray diligently and and let's put ourselves to work for such things that we would be growing Let us pray also that we might walk in the fear of God and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. I love this part of the verse that these two things tied so closely together. You know, oftentimes we want to, I think, sanitize and diminish this language of fear, the fear of God. Oh, God doesn't want me to be afraid. Well, sure, but... God is God, and we ought to fear Him, but God does not merely want me to be afraid. He wants to comfort me. He wants to comfort you. He wants you to fear Him and to walk in the comfort of His Spirit. And so let's pray for that, and let's pray that God would give the increase. Let us pray for conversions to Christ. Let us pray for, as I've said, that this baptismal pool is is full every month, every week. Let's pray for our children, for our neighbors. You know, we're not, churches shouldn't be looking to fill seats merely or to pad pockets. That's not what, what we're doing here. But are we desperate for more disciples who are walking in the fear of God and enjoying the comfort of His Spirit. I pray that we would be increasingly so desperate that God would do that among us. And so let's pray. Let's seek God's help. And may it be said of us and many other churches all over this world that we experience these same blessings that Jesus poured out upon His church in Judea and Samaria. And so this is, this is where, in effect, we leave Samaria here in Acts, where we leave Saul for a time. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to return to Peter. We've not heard from Peter really for a while, and we're going to consider, I'm going to go ahead and tell you now, a lengthy passage from 9.32 all the way to 11.18, where we see Jesus give this commission of Jesus back from Acts 1. Commission goes global in the next section. He's promised them power in Jerusalem. Check. He promised them power to witness also in Judea and Samaria. Check. And last Certainly not least, here comes the power for witnessing to the ends of the earth. And so, to sum it all up, 
Jesus is the Christ. The world hated him, and so it's going to hate you. Avail yourself of chances to avoid danger when you can. But take heart, whatever comes your way, the Lord Jesus has overcome the world. And we have something special here at RBC as the people of God. Unity, love for one another, peace, the fear of God and the comfort of His Spirit.